Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary, Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include data breaches, my interview with Technotree's Matt Sanchez on the evolution of AI from his work as the leader of IBM Watson Labs to its practical implications in the mortgage space today and in the future, and what to make of the Fed raising or pausing at its upcoming meeting. Thanks to Built Technologies for sponsoring today's podcast. Join Built Technologies on June 20th at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time for an exclusive webinar that will dive into proactive portfolio monitoring. During this event, gain valuable knowledge from Built's experts as they share best practices for achieving greater visibility into your construction portfolio. Unlock the secrets of successful portfolio management and learn how to leverage the power of data-driven decision-making. Well, what should we start with today? How about California and Texas ranking highest on the United States Postal Service's annual list of states with the most dog baits against its employees? Or how about Freedom Mortgage Corporation filing a notice of data breach after learning that confidential consumer data entrusted to the company was subject to unauthorized access, the result of a cybersecurity incident at one of the company's vendors, Mortgage Industry Advisory Corporation, or MIHAC. Data is critical in so many things, whether it's closing a branch, not caring if an LO heads to another company, or in determining that people can save money by buying books at Amazon instead of the local bookshop. Along those lines, Saturday's commentary noting the CFPB's use of its funding to determine that different companies charge different prices received, as you can imagine, a lot of responses. Think residential lenders have too many regulators looking over their shoulders? How about too many regulatory bodies and regulations in general? Well, as you ponder that, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Technotree's Matt Sanchez to talk about the evolution of AI from his work as the leader of IBM Watson Labs to its practical implications in the mortgage space today and in the future. As the global chief data and AI officer at Technotree, he's responsible for developing and productizing data and AI technologies for Technotree clients across the globe in multiple industries, including telco, healthcare, and financial services. He's focused on changing the way AI works from being just an opaque set of algorithms to becoming a safe, transparent, and trusted augmented intelligence that enhances human potential and creates measurable business outcomes. Before Technotree, Mr. Sanchez was the founder of Cognitive Scale, the world's fourth largest AI patent portfolio. He was also the leader of IBM Watson Labs, and led the development of IBM Watson-powered solutions in the financial services and healthcare industries. I think the, the natural first question I'd, I'd want to ask you is about IBM Watson, since you were the leader of, of IBM Watson Labs and led the development of IBM Watson-powered solutions in the financial services and healthcare industries. What was that role like? What was developing Watson like? And, and I guess ultimately... How does that compare to what's going on in the AI space today? That was a really interesting time in the uh, in the field, and um, you know, going back to 2011 when I started working in the Watson team, I was one of the first members of the commercial group. IBM had just um, completed this Watson project, this grand challenge, which they aired live, playing defeating Jeopardy champions with a uh, natural language processing system that um, was pretty pretty exciting at the time. I mean, this was um, 
you know, quite a while ago now, uh, when that when that first um, came out. And in fact, the R&D, the research team started working on the Watson system four years prior to that. So if you really kind of wind the clock back to 2006, 2007, um, that's when that development really started. And it took it took them four years to develop a system with the technology we had at the time, right? No, uh, no large language models, um, really no deep, deep learning was just still in research papers. Um, you know, basic, what we consider to be very basic tools uh, for natural language processing, but they were developing some new techniques and they were learning how to combine those techniques to create the result that they aired on that on that game show. <laughs> um, and it was pretty compelling. Uh, it was compelling because at the time, um, the ability for that system to address open domain question answering, which was really the, the problem statement um, that the team, the research team set out to solve for um, with the tools we had available was was pretty exciting, um, you know, comparing it to what we had with um you know search tools back then um you know that was sort of the state of the art the web search right and um you know what they demonstrated was that the there were a lot of nuances in language that uh you know basic search doesn't really pick up on semantics and syntax and meaning uh you know meaning and in, in things like pun and innuendo uh, that, that the Watson system was able to understand and learn about and actually reason about, come up with, with answers to, to clues that um, we often find, you know, Jeopardy was a good test bed for actually. Um, and so that was exciting, but it was also a time when the word AI, especially in the enterprise context, was really wasn't, wasn't being used. We were still what we now, if we look back, we're sort of at the tail end of the um, what it, the, the AI nuclear winter, the last one we we experienced. Okay, so um, kind of you know people had uh, had forgotten about AI for the most part. There were th new new terminology at the time was things like big data and cloud was still pretty nascent and machine learning was there, but it was it was kind of still science projects. Um, but um, and and you know a few years after that deep learning comes about and and so on and so forth and i'll get to where we are today but this was all before that really hit the scene and in fact ibm didn't even call it ai at the time when they launched this as a marketing push um they called it cognitive computing and cognitive systems and so that was the language that we used um we described these systems because it was beyond just basic analytics um it was you know, the ability to reason and understand um, language and video and audio and other things and actually reason more like a human reasons, not just make predictions or do basic analytics. So that was really the exciting part about that time. We're starting to see that possibility, but it was very complex and very difficult to implement. And the time it took us to go to new customers and I was built, you know, my job when I started with that group was really to sort of figure out how do we go and uh, make this viable as a commercial effort. We had this great system that was built that demonstrated uh, something pretty powerful, but you know, you go to a customer with that system and they say, okay, great, this is fantastic, this is amazing. What can I do with, uh, you know, what can I do with this, this system? Um, you know, how do I, how do I take something that plays Jeopardy and apply it to a healthcare business or to a banking business or an insurance business or any kind of business. And so that was a, you know, what questions should I even ask this system? 
Okay. So that was almost the first thing people would think about. What can I even ask this? It seems amazing, but what I don't even know what to ask. And so it became difficult just to really frame for the customer what that solution would look like. Right. Uh, and, and, and even define, you know, even worse at that point, nobody had the data necessary to really train one of those systems. Watson required a lot of data to be able to analyze and build sort of and customize how it worked for a specific use case, specific domain. And most customers didn't even, hadn't even thought about how to um, acquire that information or build that within their, within their own organization. And so it was very early days, I would say, <laughs> uh, taking something that had taken a nice leap forward in, in demonstrating what's possible with AI, but then trying to apply it in the uh, commercial space was very challenging. So, um, you know, that was sort of where we were. I did that for three years. It was interesting. We built a lot of interesting systems, unlocked lots and lots of use cases. I probably worked with over 100 customers on different use cases and different ideas. And we built some very interesting, innovative systems, um, you know, in those early years. But ultimately, what I re recognized was that, uh, you know, customers were going to struggle with this because they didn't understand how to really harness their data. And furthermore, um, even if I can tell you, when if, even if I can give you an answer to any question you want, um, I'm going to have a difficult time contextualizing that answer. So the systems, Watson, when you ask it a question, didn't know who you were, <laughs> didn't know anything about your context. And so it might give you answers that were factually correct, but contextually completely wrong, out of context, uh, confusing. And I mentioned this because this is similar to how we can tell these current language-based systems or language models, chat GPT, et cetera, work today. This idea of having context is still incredibly important and still and still largely unsolved um, in those systems. And it's one of the things that we set out to solve when I left IBM um, and actually started my own company was to really think about how to personalize what can the insights that any of these types of AI systems can create. And that's still the mission I'm on today and um, certainly have applied it now to many different industries, many different applications, uh, develop some technology that can help us really get to the get to that core context contextualization and generate actionable insights that, you know, real end users can take advantage of. And that's been that really has been my mission. That was sort of my inspiration coming out of the Watson group was that how do we really get to that actionable uh, insights that's contextualized that um, works at the level of the individual human, <laughs> um, because we can talk, we can always think about these systems, and the and there's some total of all the, the knowledge and intelligence that they reason over, and it's it is sort of mind-boggling. But when you get down to it, it's that individual interaction with the end user, and whether or not that's valuable or not, that's where the real magic is. Um, and so I was inspired by that, and that's why um, you know sort of left and, and went to go to work on that kind of problem. Um, and really still working on that even till even to this day. Um, I think it's it is still the um, sort of a one of the last mile problems I think about in the AI space that how do you really contextualize? How do you really build that bridge between these very powerful AI systems and the end user? Um, so that kind of just sort of leads me up to where we are today with uh, with the technology and the kinds of problems we're working on now. Well, you had you used the term nuclear winter or first nuclear winter when it came to AI. And I would argue that we're kind of on the precipice of this nuclear summer 
or nuclear proliferation uh, is, would be one way to put it. It seems AI is everywhere and, and it's mm-hmm. the capabilities are, are rapidly growing and we'll get to regulation in a second. But when it comes to continuing to be able to contextualize, where are we with that? And how do you see the contextualization continuing to evolve in the, at least in the short term here? Yeah, you're exactly. So if you look at where we are today and the fact where we've been, which really just happened in the last year or two, uh, it has, we are now in a, a completely different era. So I was talking to somebody about this the other day and the, the, the time it took us to, and the, the effort and the cost to build that, to build a Watson system back in 2011 and 2012, I could sit down today with maybe a hundred dollars <laughs> and take one, an open source model and i can develop a system that comes close to approximating what watson could have done, could have done for many you know for many millions of dollars um, and many many months of time um, so the rate and pace at which we can apply we can solve those types of problems now um, and that anybody can solve these the open access to this technology has really unlocked that and i think that's in very important for two reasons one i think it's good to, i think it's actually good for um this technology to continue to develop and for people to be able to play with it and understand it and adapt it and evolve it um versus it staying locked behind um closed doors um because in any field like this it's uh it is ultimately the end products that we create that we have to think about uh in terms of regulation in terms of use uh, the technology continue needs to continue to advance until it can actually generate workable, usable, acceptable, well-aligned end products. And so this proliferation, as you put it, I think is actually um, a, a good thing. I don't think it's, uh, are there risks? Yes, of course, there's risks that people mis- misuse technology, but that risk exists for any technology that exists, sits out there. It can be misused in many different ways and cause harm. But we and, and AI uh, the 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 increased risk is we have less understanding of what that harm could potentially be. So we do need to be you know thinking about responsible use of AI, AI safety, um, how it applies. How do what are the new things we need? What are the new things we need to do to address the risks that AI can can introduce? And because they can probably they can probably do things you know in ways that we've AI can can create problems that we have yet to fully understand, right? And those problems might be proliferating right now, and we don't even realize it. And I think we saw this; we've seen this uh, in uh, you know the political theater play out in, in elections, in misinformation, um, and you know that's just maybe the tip of the iceberg of 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 some of the damage that could be caused if we don't understand and we don't get ahead of it. So. Um, the way you do that, though, is to, I think, first of all, open it up, make it available and accessible for people to understand it um, and evolve it. And you, at the same time, start thinking proactively about the safety guidelines and regulations and that are there. Now, one thing I'll say about context and why, why that's so important and just this idea of contextualization or personalization is so important is that I think that is one of the tenets of responsible AI, safe safe use of AI. So there was a couple of things that the Watson system did that I thought were were quite intriguing that if I were to look at where we are today with uh, maybe like chat GPT and that 
generation, generative AI uh, are, are missing. First of all, Watson, whenever it came up with an answer to a question, you can figure out, it would, you could find out exactly where it got that answer from, down to the passage and the specific document and the specific version of the corpus that, uh, that was used to come up with that answer. Second thing, Watson would have come up with multiple answers to every question, and you could see how it ranked those answers and why one was ranked above another one. Okay, so this idea of it being able to explain itself to you and why it's doing that is, I think, very, very important. We need that level of transparency in these systems to understand why they're recommending something or answering a question a certain way or generating a certain response in the generative generative AI you know context, and it's something that's not trivial in these systems today. In fact, it's it's one of these open problems of how do we really uh, provide that kind of usability um, in those systems that that exist today. And I think it's in a very important, uh, very important topic. It's one that without that, I think it's going to be very difficult to see mass scale product adoption, meaning, you know, people, these technologies showing up in real end, end user products. Um, we have to have that level of, of explainability. And so that's something that when I think about context, if I'm a user, I want the system to be able to, to contextualize what's being shown to me. I want to know why I'm seeing what I'm seeing. I want to know where it came up, where it came up with that insight. And I want to know that it did so in a way that is um, aligned with, um, you know, ethical and moral principles of, you know, my uh, jurisdiction, wherever I am. So those, those things I think are incredibly important for any adoption, any AI technology adoption. And I think without that, it, it is, it is even more risky than what we have, uh, you know, with it, with it just sort of being out there today. As someone who's so well-versed in this, are you willing to hypothesize on the, the risks or I, I guess a better way to put it would be how does humanity stay one step ahead of something that's so infinitely intelligent or more, more intelligent than humans? How do you regulate something like that? How do you, how do you keep it in check? It's not like, you know, some people will have this doomsday scenario of, oh, it'll hold things for ransom. Money is no good to an AI computer. It's not like an AI computer can buy something, but there are other risks. And I think you hit on one, which is it gets ahead of humans. How do humans stay one step ahead of AI? Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, AI is, um, first of all, to say AI is smarter than humans, I think actually is not quite correct. I think to compare human, the way the human brain works and the way AI works, I think these things have diverged more than they've uh, converged, actually. Okay, so meaning that the the you know, there's two sides of that coin, by the way. One side is that AI, I don't think, is getting closer to how humans think. I think it's doing its own type of thinking, which that part is actually quite interesting. And that's what we need to actually be paying attention to is, you know, AI is coming up with things, coming up with answers, coming up with information. Um, is that really um, wisdom? Is that something we should trust, or is it is it coming up with it in such a way that we look at it and go, oh, no, that's not how you should that's not how you should quote unquote think about that problem. That's not how we would think about that problem. That's inappropriate, or it's not aligned with our you know cultural or moral or legal framework. Um, so that's the real danger, I think, is that we have AI systems which we think are as smart or can be you know 
replace maybe or our human thinking in some ways, but in reality, they're not, those systems are not quote unquote thinking the way we do. Um, and I think that's, uh, that misnomer really uh, proliferates um, kind of the public understanding of, of AI systems. Um, and I think we, we are, you know, the human brain is so complex. Our reasoning capability is so complex. The way we learn is so different than how these AI systems learn. Um, and if you think about it, there's information, there's knowledge, there's wisdom, and there's learning, right? It's kind of this closed loop thing. Human beings process that cycle very differently than these AI systems do. Um, and, and the AI systems are better at certain things, right? AI systems are better at information. I mean, collecting, storing, processing large amounts of information. Uh, they are arguably better at knowledge. So retrie you know, retrieval of knowledge um, or, or coming up with some knowledge. It's not clear whether they're better at wisdom, uh, which I think is knowledge applied in the right context and the right place to, to achieve desired result. Um, is that, and, it, and it's not clear that they learn anywhere near the same way that humans. In fact, they don't. Uh, humans still learn in a very different way. And in fact, a lot of the AI research is, how do I make these systems learn like humans? Because humans can learn things so quickly uh, with very few examples, and we can learn different things in different ways. And our brain forms different pathways to <laughs> seemingly learn these different things without, you know, any, and I think our, our understanding of how that works is, is really still very nascent. And so how do you continually learn and how do you bring that learning back into these systems? That is very different than how humans learn. Um, and I think that that also creates a challenge. So we've always thought about it as AI is something that can augment our experience, right? It is something that can improve productivity. It can potentially save cost. It can cause, it can even save lives if it's used in a way that helps us identify risks or uh, gaps in our knowledge that otherwise would have um, caused the caused the problem, right? I mean, I, I can think of this in the medical medical context. I can think of this in the just in terms of uh, understanding, you know, climate risks and other types of risks that are out there. I think AI can uncover some of these things things that humans just maybe miss because we don't have enough processing capacity or focus or can process the information as as efficiently as AI can. So, but the, then the real question is back to my point on, on context. So AI is thinking about, AI is coming up with a new way of thinking about a massive amount of information in a way that people can't do. How do we as human beings then harness that AI? What, do, what, is, what are examples where that AI, where harnessing that AI, however powerful it is, is achieving the desired result that as human beings we have for it. Um, and I think if uh, we can, we can find counterexamples easily where AI could potentially go off uh, off the rails. We can find examples where maybe it is really helpful. Um, and, you know, if it's so helpful and so useful, at some point, we don't even think about it as AI anymore. It's just part of our sort of normal, you know, sort of background and landscape and set of tools that we, we can use. And that's where I think it becomes really, really powerful um, when it just is woven into experiences and we don't even think about it anymore. It's not that I now have to think about the world differently because as AI is there, it's that AI is there to help and assist and to improve our experience. So that's, I think, I, I mean, I think that's a way to frame the 
problem. So, or, or frame the test, if you will, of whether AI is aligned with us or not as human beings. Is it something that really is enhancing our experience, enhancing our lives, or is it causing us to have to change in ways that are unnatural or, you know, unethical or some other way that just really is is not, um, you know, sort of beneficial to humanity. And I think it takes a, it take, you know, this is obviously a complicated question, complicated set of things to figure out. I think it's something that every culture, society, country, you you know, you you define how you want to break down the jurisdictions of of humanity, but it, it does have to be answered different differently for different societies. But the impact of technology on society, I think, in general, is um, is something that we should be grappling with. Um, and I know that that's top of mind for a lot of <laughs> a lot of leaders in our government, as well as in technology space, other peers of mine in the in the uh, in this space. Um, because I don't think I think we're still at a point where people are trying to understand what AI what it actually means and what is its potential. And we're seeing these amazing things happening and it seems to be exploding so quickly. Are we ready for it? Do we understand it? Um, how do we understand it? Uh, and I think we do have to get through some of these misnomers of, oh, AI is smarter than us now. And I think that's really not the litmus test, in my opinion. It's more of this, AI is actually useful now, right? Um, if How do we know AI is actually useful? And can be applied to these types of problems is safe. It's useful and safe to use. I, I think those are the litmus tests we should really be uh, focused on. I very much appreciate you correcting me on that because that's a that's a much better way to look at it than the way that I had framed the question. And I I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours, and I'm sure you spend your your days talking about this sun up to sundown. But I want to respect your time here, and so I, I will close by asking you. When it, this is a mortgage-specific podcast. And so how do you see AI augmenting the mortgage experience, the origination process, pricing, whatever it might be, to, to bring, bring that process forward, make things better on people? And, and ultimately, I guess part B of that question would be, it's historically been a relationship-based industry. How do you see AI dovetailing with industries that have historically been relationship-based? Yeah, so I'm glad you. I'm glad we got to this because I, I did want to talk about how we thought about this in the mortgage space specifically. Um, so about two years ago, kind of beginning of 2021, we set out to look for an opportunity in either the financial services industry or the healthcare industry where we could not just uh, traditionally we had been focused on providing tools and technology and helping our customers build solutions, but we wanted ourselves. We felt like we could apply the technology we've been developing deep within an industry down to the end user to drive a product-led growth initiative, um, which we ultimately now call TrustStar. Uh, TrustStar is a, uh, an application on the web that uh, is designed for loan officers um, and others within the mortgage origination space to be able to, uh, to use to help improve um, how they find referrals. Uh, to to help with their business, to grow their business, to to have the market intelligence, real time market intelligence, to really help them, um, you know, perform better uh, and and be more productive. And so we set out to to solve that problem. And the, and because we were sort of obsessed with this idea of contextualization, personalization, how do we make, 
you know, the user, our end user should not have to worry about the fact that there's a lot of data complexity and AI is all is behind the scenes. And we didn't want to build an analytical application. We wanted to build a useful tool for a loan officer so that then when they log in with the fewest number of clicks, they're finding that next referral partner, uh, another, you know, typically a real estate agent who's going to be the one, the best one for them to connect with to find their next loan. Um, to source their next loan. And we set out to solve that problem because we spent hours and hours and hours talking to loan officers about the market. And this was back in, we started this journey in 2021, continued it through 2022. And as you know, the market went completely upside down and flipped 180 degrees in that time period with uh, you know everything being about historically low interest rates and refinance to huge spike in interest rates, refinance business completely more or less shutting off uh, and to where we are today with 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 much higher interest rates and very low supply on the market and uh, and just a massive shift uh, and, and of course costs going up as well. So very different market now. And, and as we talked to loan officers through that process to understand what would be useful for them, there was this consistent answer they don't have time to go and research and spend time and they don't want to waste time working with the looking for the wrong partners and researching and trying to find all this information can we just tap them on the shoulder and say here's what you should do next can we give them something that precise that actionable here's the next real estate agent you should go talk to right here is the next opportunity area for you you should be looking for a new partner in this county over here because that's where we've seen the kind of business pop up that you, you know, the products you have to sell, that's where you can sell them right over here. Can we make it that simple for them? And so Truststar was was launched with that in mind. And it uses um, a lot of data that we collect uh, from, from various sources, over 100 different sources of data that we bring together behind the scenes. We use AI technologies to both understand and uh, normalize that information, do entity resolution, apply different algorithms for scoring, trend analysis. We make a lot of different predictions. But what we ultimately show the loan officer is a very simple application where they go and they log on to our website and right there sitting in front of them is here are the real estate agents that are trending in your area where you are going to be successful. We're not showing you 2 million real estate agents, we're showing you the, the top 10 that we think you need to go talk to right now. And then within a few clicks, they can really figure out exactly how they need to go talk to that person. They can come up with ideas for how should I reach out to them? What are they interested in? What are they, where are they doing, you know, their most business? Where can I come in and help them? Um, how am, and so we kind of think of it as this sort of, uh, you know, dating algorithm for Realtors and and loan officers. How do we match them together and make them successful together? How do we build that network um, uh, for them and help them help them build their networks? And so we set out to solve that problem. And with the AI, you know, behind the scenes in this, we thought, you know, let's see if uh, if we can really make a difference in the mortgage industry and help both the loan officers find and source and close more deals so that they were. Um, you know, successful and to help the realtors not also get better connections, right? So if loan officers are better at finding partners that match their business and they're going to be more efficient with, 
then realtors are also going to get the benefit of that as well, because they're going to be connecting with people who are going to help them do what they need to accomplish and are better aligned with their market and their product needs. And so that was, it's a sort of a, sort of a win-win on both sides. And, you know, at the core of that, we're using, and, and we continue to add new AI capabilities to that behind the scenes to make it work. But ultimately our, um, our true north is really that usefulness, right? Does the loan officer find this useful? Do they keep coming back? Uh, you know, are the insights we're providing those like aha insights? They're like, yes, this is exactly what I was looking for. And you guys knew that and brought it to me and I didn't have to waste a lot of time searching for it. And here it is. Um, can we help the managers of these, the, uh, of the loan producers um, find the best talent for them in the market? Can we help uncover their opportunities as well um, for, for growth and, and, and so on. And we, there's a lot of other ideas we have in that space as we look at the whole network, because as you know, the mortgage space is a very diverse network of different parties, right? Um, the homeowners, the buyers, and the sellers on the real estate side and realtors, but you've also got you know loan originators of different types. You've got insurance companies, title insurance, property insurance, uh, you've got the the regulatory landscape uh, and regulators as well, and so on and so forth. So the, a very large ecosystem of different players, which form a network of you know these different relationships. Right, the loan officer and realtor relationship is a very important relationship. The title insurance relationship with the lender is very important. Like these are all very important relationships that, um, if they're working well, can create a lot of value. Um, you know, in that in that network. And so we're very interested in helping people really connect and optimize what they're doing, um, starting with with lenders. That's how we've really rolled out Trustar today. Um, and we're looking at other sides of that. We're looking at other you know uh, players in that ecosystem and how we can help them as well. So we're very excited about what it's what it's done so far. It's still early days um, in terms of uh, you know uh, we've only launched the product officially at the end of last year. Um, but we're really excited to see the uh, to see how ex- excited our, our customers are are about it uh, at this point. And you know, for me personally, it really is a good example of how AI can be applied to be useful and to be contextual and to be something that um, you know somebody looks at and doesn't question. Um, oh, this is you know this is providing me information that just seems completely wrong or. I don't understand why you know these 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 charts and graphs are complicated, or it's generating something that I don't agree with, um, or I don't under I can't make sense of it. It's too complex. We would we wanted to make sure none of that was was part of our system and actually create something that was just in, very targeted and very useful for the end user. And so we're excited about that, and that's something we're um, really uh, going to be you know launching. Um, even a newer version of this coming at the you know this summer, uh, focused on some diff- some of those different personas um, in the ecosystem, and we have some new partnerships as well that we're going to be announcing um, that we we're, we're very excited about. So we we're um, that's that's how we're applying uh, this in the mortgage space, and I think um, you know we've uh, uh, been been really honored to see the receptiveness of the of the industry around it in fact we came in third place at the digital mortgage conference last year um just just out of the gates showing this off on stage 
um, you know, we're, we were selected as one of the most innovative products that year. So last year, so we're very excited to, to, to see the, the response and um, I think this is a great example of how this could be applied uh, broadly in that in the mortgage ecosystem beyond uh, lenders into the rest of the ecosystem as well. For those people that this has piqued their interest, and it certainly piqued my interest, what are the best next steps, re- reach out for contact, or where, where do they go? How do they check it out? Yeah, well, you can go to truststar.ai, the website, and you can actually go there and, and sign up. And um, what our offering today is for uh, mortgage producers. And so um, you enter your NMLS ID and you're in the system and you can start using it uh, right away. We offer uh, a free trial and, um, and, and if there's information on our website about how to contact us and we'll be happy to talk to you more about it. Fantastic. Well, Matt, I, I genuinely enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully I'll have you back on soon as the, the space progresses here. I know it's evolving rapidly and uh, I really want to thank you for making the time today. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. With America's debt limit drama in the rearview mirror until the next national election, and along with it the potential for triggering a catastrophic default, we return to your regular scheduled programming of the global battle against inflation. The U.S. economy is not in the doldrums and certainly doesn't need the stimulus of a Fed rate cut. The Fed has achieved some progress, and the U.S. economy is cooling down, but non-farm payroll growth blew past expectations in May, increasing by 339000 compared to a consensus forecast of 195000 The job market clearly hasn't cracked under the Fed's tightening, and this good news for American workers is making the Federal Reserve's life difficult. Wage growth, the Fed's primary focus for inflation, though decelerating, remains strong and continues to exert inflationary pressure on the economy, with average hourly earnings growing at 4.3% year-over-year in May. Consumer spending, core capital goods orders, and inflation also all picked up speed in April, making the Fed's task of getting inflation under control more difficult. The Fed has now officially entered its quiet period ahead of next week's FOMC meeting, so there won't be any further Fed speak until after the upcoming rate decision. Last week, there were a number of Fed officials that highlighted diverging views on economic conditions and the appropriate policy path moving forward. Voting members that spoke voiced their preference for a skip of raising rates at this meeting, meaning they could raise again at a later meeting after allowing for more data. The Fed doesn't have to hike at every meeting, and while the skip is not a pause, it will allow the Fed to assess how the aggressive tightening cycle that started in March of 2022 has impacted the real economy. Volatility could begin to trend downward once the Federal Reserve ends its current rate hiking cycle, and investors come to terms with the central bank keeping rates elevated for much longer than previously anticipated. This relatively data-light week this week, as is typical in the week after the jobs report, opened with minimal movement in the bond markets yesterday. Keeping with that trend, today's scheduled calendar only has the non-market-moving Red Book same-store sales. We begin the day with agency MBS prices roughly unchanged from Monday, the 10-year yielding 3.67 after closing yesterday at 3.69%, and the two-year at 4.50%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Here's Food for Thought, part two of five. 110 years ago, everyone owned a horse and only the rich had cars. Today, everyone has cars and only the rich own horses. 
If people evolved from monkeys, why are monkeys still around? Why is there a D in fridge, but not in refrigerator? And as I've grown older, I've learned that pleasing everyone is impossible, but making everyone angry is a piece of cake. Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Built Technologies. Join Built Technologies on June 20th at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time for an exclusive webinar that will dive into proactive portfolio monitoring as Built's experts share best practices for achieving greater visibility into your construction portfolio. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.